Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I feel like we are a little late on this this year because it is hot outside. It's been hot outside for a while. For sure. Beach trips have been happening. Yeah. And kids are out of school in some places. In, in some places in the world, yes, children are not in school. And we're only just now doing our annual summer reading podcast. I think it's fine. I think it's fine, I think we have a ton of really fast reading listeners. Yeah. I mean, our listeners are reading year-round, really. Yeah, I would hope so. And also, we have talked so much about sci-fi, and we had that episode with the fabulous Sarah Merck of Bitch Magazine and Propaganda earlier in the year. And so we people have already... People, I mean, sminty people specifically, have already been excited about the science fiction and visionary fiction topic. And we got so many of our recommendations from you guys. So you're already out there reading all of this wonderful science fiction. Yeah. And spoiler alert, everyone. The theme of this year's summer reading episode is science fiction. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yep. Hey. But we've been spoiling it since (laughs) that uh, that talk with Sarah Merck. Yeah. And not that we ever really try to keep it a secret. No. I just like to say spoiler alert sometimes. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, there's a podcast coming up. Spoiler alert. People write books about the future to teach us about the present. That's right. Ooh. Ooh. Well, before we get into our history and analysis of women writing science fiction and also how gender is portrayed and played with in scientific realms, uh, I wanted to call out some of the themes of those listener letters that we got when we started talking about science fiction and visionary fiction in April. And one of the main names that we heard from Stuff Mom Never Told You, listeners both um, in their letters and on Facebook, was James Tiptree Jr. wondering why we didn't mention her in our visionary fiction podcast. But don't worry, we're going to talk about Tiptree Jr. today. Um, Someone also suggested not only science fiction Writing, but also sci-fi comics, Mm -hmm. such as Oh Human Star and the New World Anthology. And then, Caroline, uh, listener Emma Mm -hmm. sent us a quote from Ray Bradbury. Oh, yes. That I thought was a a good frame for our conversation. Are you ready? Hit me up. Okay, here we go. Quote (laughs) Bradbury. Science fiction is a great way to pretend you're writing about the future, when in reality, you're attacking the recent past and present. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, because uh, even in our just conversations about recent events in the sci-fi world, there are deeper conversations and issues related to gender, race, representation, and how all of that works in in our world, both past and present, as Bradbury noted. Yeah, and I think sort of that concept is why a lot of people out there say, you know, it's interesting that we can't seem to move past things like uh, heterosexual relationships or gender binaries in science fiction that we're not thinking bigger. Because if we are talking about the future, the very distant future, or even just different planets or different galaxies or universes, 
are we really just still sticking with like white men and white women uh, getting married and having babies? We can't really think of any other construction of a relationship. I mean, Caroline, the heteronormativity of Martian society <laughs> must be dismantled. But yeah, but I think that 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 quote from Bradbury is is so perfect and it really does sum up a lot of what's so fantastic about science fiction because and visionary fiction because yeah, it not only lets you sort of envision a different possibly better future, maybe a dystopian future uh, or a utopian future. Who knows? But it does also let you reflect a lot on what's going on around you. And it helps, I think, especially if you get people started really young reading science fiction and fantasy. It lets people build up their imaginations enough to question what's going on around them. Yeah. And speaking of what's going on around us, when that episode with Sarah Merck, in which we talked about visionary fiction, came out, a lot of people thought that we had specially timed it to happen when not only the Hugo Awards were going down, but more specifically, all of the sad and rabid puppy controversy surrounding this year's Hugo Awards. Yeah, a lot of people just went sad, rabid puppies. No, there was not some Humane Society jailbreak. It wasn't at the Hugo Awards. <laughs> that Sarah McLaughlin uh, Humane <laughs> Society dog shelter commercial was not playing on loop. No, it was not, Kristen. Yeah, to give you a little bit of an idea of what was going on, basically the Hugo Awards are one of the most prestigious award ceremonies in science fiction. Um, and the deck was somewhat uh, stacked against women and people of color, uh, you could argue, this year, at this year's awards. Yeah, so it was created in 1953, and it has been happening annually since 1955. So they're well established. And the way it works is that these Hugo Awards are voted on by members of the World Science Fiction Convention or Worldcon. And Worldcon members can nominate up to five people slash works from the previous year in 17 different categories. And the way you become a Worldcon member is paying the low, low price of $40. And then from there, based on those results, you get five finalists in each of those 17 categories, which are then announced, and then a final ballot sent to the members, who then rank all the nominees. So as you can imagine, this is not a difficult system to game. Right, exactly. And over the years, more and more women and people of color have been nominated. That's great. They've always been there. It's just that people are starting to finally pay them more attention and give them the nominations that they deserve. For instance, way back in 1968, Anne McCaffrey became the first woman to win a Hugo Award for fiction. And she won in the category of Best Novella for Where Search, which also won her her first Nebula, making her also the first woman to win a Nebula Award, which is mm. similar to the Hugos. It's another sci-fi literary award. Correct. And as the New Republic pointed out, looking at the whole Hugo Award drama, from 1959 to 2014, fiction nominations at the Hugo Awards went to women 22% of the time. So not quite a quarter. Uh, but, you know, the recent gains by women and people of color make sense, right? It only should make sense that as we go along, more women and people of color are recognized. But... A lot of angry Worldcon members have worked hard to reverse the trend. Yeah, I mean, essentially, there 
is this faction of primarily uh, disgruntled white men who think that this more recent recognition of works not only featuring uh, themes related to diversity and representation and gender, but also written by a more diverse authors is all part of a liberal campaign to, you know, just, just force this kind of diversity onto the genre and also onto the readership. Yeah, Jeet here, writing for the New Republic, says that the trend has upset right-wing fans who say they've been marginalized by affirmative action gone mad. And so they basically organized this nomination campaign to undo any of the gains in diversity among authors, creating what here said was an unprecedented party-line slate, which has led to the stacking of this year's Hugo ballot largely with white men once again. And so this this year in 2015, men made up more than 80% of fiction nominees. And pretty much everything surrounding these conservative factions it does start to get really ridiculous, starting with the fact that they call themselves either the sad puppies or the rabid puppies, depending on their level of conservative extremism. And a lot of them seem to really yearn for a, a frankly imaginary, apolitical and non-socially conscious sci-fi past, which has really never been the case with sci-fi. And it's worth noting, too, that when we say, oh, these are a bunch of, you know, often angry white men, we're not just being flip feminists about it. I mean, these are guys who are running things called the patriarchy press. Right. And who explicitly write about how both women and people of color are inferior in a lot of horrifying and bigoted ways. And and that they should not get to vote for the Hugo Awards. Yeah, I mean, for instance, the, the leader of the Rabid Puppies said that women shouldn't get to vote and has called African Americans, quote, half savages. These are the types of people that we're dealing with. And if you want a more in-depth look at this whole nonsense, um, I'll include a link to an on-the-media podcast about this on our podcast post on stuffmonevertoldyou.com. But unfortunately, their efforts paid off. They they managed to really game the system, like you said, Kristen, and just under three quarters of the nominees were puppy approved. Well, I wonder, though, if it is all that unfortunate because there was so much backlash, and I think sometimes that the this backlash has the you know, opposite effect of raising conversations that people like sad puppies and rabid puppies would rather us not have. It only yeah. highlights how out of touch they are. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, it does seem silly when you're talking about, about a bunch of emotional puppies um, in terms of science fiction. Uh, but here points out that, quote, the ruckus makes a lot more sense in the context of science fiction's historical lack of diversity. Because while, yes, science fiction and fantasy have always toyed with alternate realities and presented alternate possibilities for, for living life, whether it's our planet or some other planet, it has, like a lot of other things, historically been sort of run by, uh, or the gatekeepers have been historically, white guys. Yeah, I mean... A lot of white guys who tend to have very strong political leanings one way or another. Um, but 
one person who really stands out from the crowd is an influential sci-fi editor, John W. Campbell, who in the 1960s ran the leading genre magazine, Analog. And he was well-respected, obviously, within the sci-fi community and was also a raging racist who published editorials in favor of slavery in pre-industrial societies, who also endorsed George Wallace for president and didn't want black authors or black characters featured too prominently in his magazine. Um, case in point, sci-fi prodigy, who's often called the first African-American sci-fi writer, Samuel R. Delaney, was turned down by Campbell to have his novel, Nova, serialized in analog because Campbell said, you know, I really don't think our readers would enjoy or connect with a black main character. Oh, <laughs> You know, and not to mention, too, the fact that Delaney was black. I mean, it's yeah, I'm sure there was really nothing going in his favor at that point, even though, I mean, he had already started winning awards. He already had a Hugo under his belt for his work. Well, and I wish we could say that we still don't see that in the publishing industry, whether it's in magazines or books. Um, And, you know, Octavia E. Butler, who obviously we'll we'll talk about more in just a second, um, she saw all sorts of weird things happen with her books. You know, she's an African-American woman, uh, and most of her protagonists are other African-American or black women, depending on what universe you're in, I guess, right? Um, but she often saw her covers featuring white people. Yeah. yeah. So it's that kind of whitewashing, that attempt to whitewash a lot of science fiction stuff. Well, and in, in, in a piece for the New York Review of Science Fiction, Delaney wrote about racism and sci-fi and actually talked about how he wears the label of first African-American science fiction writer with caution because there has been a lot of erasure of writers of color coming along before him writing what, I mean, he termed it more proto-science fiction, but still along a lot of the same themes, but due to the way white society has worked, they have not received much recognition at all. They're not in the canon. Right, exactly. And then you have the whole issue of of women needing to hide their identities behind pen names. This is nothing new, and this certainly is not limited to science fiction, but you have people like James Tiptree Jr., who Kristen mentioned earlier, a.k.a. Alice Sheldon Bradley. This woman sounds fascinating. Beyond just her sci-fi writing, she was a one-time CIA agent who earned a PhD in psychology, and she created the pseudonym to distance herself from her previous writing that was specifically about women and girlhood. She later came out and said that she was ashamed of taking the quote-unquote easy path into this male-dominated field by changing her name. I would definitely want Trip Tree Jr. at a, a all-lady dinner party. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, there's also C.J. Cherry, and that's Cherry with an H at the end, um, whose real name is Carolyn Janice Cherry, no H. And Cherry added the H, just made me laugh, so that she wouldn't sound like a romance novelist. Yeah, I love it. I, I don't know how the H at the end really does anything other than make it look like a, like a typo, kind of. Um, but but I, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, well, you also have uh, author Vernon Lee, whose real name is Violet Paget, and Paul Ash, who was actually 
Pauline Ashwell, 14-year-old Pauline Ashwell, I think it's important to note. So even though women in sci-fi haven't always been readily apparent, sometimes due to uh, masculine pseudonyms or going just by their initials, they absolutely have been present from the beginning. I mean, asking where women in sci-fi are isn't a new question, but their visibility has ebbed and flowed. Because if you look at the 1970s, as we'll go into more depth on, that was a big decade for them. But then there was sort of a downswing in the 1980s and 90s. And now, though, despite all of this sad puppy nonsense, there seems to be another upswing happening for women in sci-fi and more visibility, especially if you take fantasy into account. Yeah, and so so come with us on this journey back to some of the pioneers, because, of course, we have to give you a historical perspective. And it doesn't start in the 1970s. It starts in the 17th century with Lady Margaret Cavendish, who also I would love to have a dinner party, Kristen. Yeah. This woman sounds fantastic, and and not just because she is cited as one of the first women to write science fiction, or one of the first people, honestly, to write science fiction, um, but I just love her introduction to her uh, book, The Blazing World. So, okay, first let's introduce you to her. She was England's first recognized female natural philosopher, a.k.a. scientist, and she was the first woman to visit the Royal Society, and she must have made a great impression, because afterwards they banned women uh, until 1945. <laughs> so so there you go. Maggie. Uh, who knows what she did, although she was heavily criticized in her time for her sailor's mouth, her unusual fashion sense, and her flirtatious behavior. So really, nothing has changed in society when we look at women. Do you know much about her unusual fashion sense? No, I don't, but we'll need to look into that. Yeah, I have so many questions, because I mean, how unusual can a lady's fashion sense really get? I wonder if she was trying to get away with, yeah, getting away with bifurcated garments. Who? I don't know. That might be why the the Royal Society banned women from <laughs> from attendance. They were like, "Whoa, woman just walked in with some bifurcated garments on, guys. We got to batten down the hatches. <laughs> Manhood is not safe in here." Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to vote. I know. Well, so she was a prolific writer. She published twenty three books, including poetry, plays, scientific observations, and literary critiques. And in sixteen sixty six, she wrote the satirical utopian vision work The Blazing World and so you can find this online we'll have a link to it Um, (laughs) the introduction is so great because it's specifically pointed at noble ladies she says and if noble ladies you should chance to take pleasure in reading these fancies I shall account myself a happy creatoress if not I must be content to live a melancholy life in my own world I just love it I love that she automatically calls out her fellow ladies yeah she's calling to her ladies and then she's given herself some props so she, she writes quote I'm not covetous but as ambitious as ever of my sex was is or can be toot toot your horn Maggie which is the cause that though I cannot be Henry V or Charles II yet I will endeavor to be Margaret I and though I have neither power time nor occasion to be a great conqueror like Alexander or Caesar yet rather than 
then not be a mistress of the world, since fortune and the fates would give me none. I have made one of my own. All of that to say, Margaret's like, listen, I know I'm not like a, a king or whatever. I'm not a dude, but I'm uh, making a throne for myself in my yeah, own world. I can create this universe myself, and it's mine, and I've set it in motion. And I love it. In her epilogue, she says, by this poetical description, you may perceive that my ambition is not only to be empress, but authoress of a whole world. And I mean, that sums up science fiction writing, right? Not only to be an authoress of the whole world, but, you know, or to be as awesome as Margaret Cavendish, but to really be able to use your imagination to create the world that you would like to see, even though you aren't a man in 1666 and you can't rule the world or be an Alexander the Great, you can be a conqueror of your own kind. Yeah, and can we just take a moment to call out all of the <laughs> the amazing uh, feminizing of words she puts in there? Because Margaret is a creatoress, she is an empress, an authoress, and a mistress <laughs> of the world. So, I mean, there's really no holding Margaret Cavendish back. She loves ladies. She loves ladies. She loves being a lady. Yeah. Being a lady's great she to Margaret. She loves ruffling feathers. Yeah. Uh, natural philosophy. I know. A.K.A. being uh, sciencey. I know. It's so wonderful. Cool. Um, well, then if we hop forward to the 19th century, we come to the woman who many call the first science fiction author, Mary Shelley, because, of course, she wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely a science fiction pioneer, and, and reading about uh, her authorship, made me want to go back and read the 1818 version of Frankenstein um, because I didn't realize that the 1831 version was heavily edited. She heavily edited it, uh, thanks to a lot of outside pressure from people who were like, this is too weird. <laughs> Mary? We need to scale this back. We know your mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, and she penned a vindication of the rights of women, and she's a big old feminist and whatever, even though we don't use that word yet. But we need you to scale this monster book back. Well, her entire biography, yeah, talking about Wollstonecraft, is so fascinating considering, you know, her, her parents, even though Wollstonecraft died, what, only days after mm-hmm. Mary Shelley was born, and then she went on to marry Percy Shelley, and for a long time... Her legacy, partially by her family, was sanitized in a way because um, she was too progressive. Yeah. She was seen as kind of sexually wanton. Yeah, well, she and her husband had an open marriage, or they didn't get married for... Oh, I can't remember what it is. I think they had an open marriage, and they were just open to lovers. Yeah, I mean, well, Percy came along when Mary was still pretty young. Yeah, and I think he was still married. Yes. And separated from his wife, got with Mary. His first wife ended up drowning herself with heart from heartbreak. Talking about drama, drama. Yeah, I know. Well, they didn't have the internet, so you got to do something. Real housewives of Wollstonecraft. That's right. Well, so <laughs> moving way forward into the 1960s. All right. So, so you got to keep in mind, like 1950s and 60s, we're getting into the space race. We're getting into the space age. There's cosmonauts and astronauts. Laser and guns. Laser guns. Pew, pew. Um, and so it only makes sense that all of a sudden we see this huge spike in science fiction, which of course brings along with it lady sci-fi and fantasy writers like Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time in 1962. And she shares uh, some stuff in common with 
uh, our, one of our other favorites, Judy Bloom, because A Wrinkle in Time is on the American Library Association's list of the 100 most frequently challenged books of 1990 to 2000, thanks to all of the fantastic references in there to witches and crystal balls, uh, the claim that it challenges religious beliefs, and the fact that it lists Jesus among other great artists, philosophers, scientists, and religious leaders instead of kind of breaking him out on his own deal. Basically. And then also in the 60s, you have Angela Carter, who was influenced by the Marquis de Sade, whom she said was one of the first writers to view women as more than baby factories. Yeah, she she didn't mind the whole aspect of of bondage or sadism that would put other people off. She just said, all right, well, at least women are active. these stories. Yeah, and she would stray a little more horror than straight science fiction. Uh, For instance, her collection of short stories, The Bloody Chamber, Mm. is one of her most beloved. And in case your interest still isn't piqued, uh, Vulture describes her as the feminist horror author you need to read immediately. (laughs) Well, not immediately, once you finish listening to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, don't turn it off yet. And then that leads us up, now that we've glossed over a ton of time on our timeline here, that leads us up now to the 1970s, which Kristen mentioned, of course, at the top of the podcast, was a huge era for science fiction and women in science fiction in particular. And a lot of this information is coming from a November 2014 article in The Atlantic. And they cite author Anne Leckie, who herself is quite famous these days. She says the 70s was a decade that was crammed with prominent women science fiction writers, and a lot of women made their debut in that decade or really came to prominence. Well, so there's one writer who was definitely leading the pack who we did mention in our visionary fiction episode with Sarah Merck, and that is Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah, I mean, technically she's still in the 60s, but in 1969, leading into... The 70s. I don't think that I need to explain how decades work (laughs) to our podcast audience. Uh, Le Guin publishes the critically acclaimed The Left Hand of Darkness, which is her first major sci-fi book, followed by The Dispossessed and Always Coming Home. And The Left Hand of Darkness, though, really put her on the map. It won her both a Hugo and a Nebula Award. And she describes it as a thought experiment featuring sexless aliens who can reproduce with anybody and they only take on sexual characteristics once a month in order to breed. So they don't have any biological sex or gender and hence no sexual prejudice. So it's considered highly feminist text. That's right. But a lot of people today look back and criticize it as still being too safe because they say... The main character is a heterosexual male. He's n- He never has sex with any of the other characters in the book, um, human or sexless alien or otherwise. And yes, while this is sort of a sexless, genderless uh, species, everyone in the book is referred to as he. But Le Guin did later say that she regretted not picking she or some made up pronoun for everybody. But, you know, at least give Le Guin in 1969 some some due critics. I mean, but critics at the time, though, weren't so concerned about her, 
gendered pronoun, but the fact that they thought realistic fiction was the only type that could be literary. And that's something that Le Guin has stood out for in terms of bridging the divide between sci-fi and more literary fiction. And I think that's a, an obstacle that a lot of science fiction and fantasy and other, other writers of that ilk uh, run up against is is not being taken seriously in the literary community. Apparently, you know, they say, oh, well, the only thing you can write to be taken seriously is like a book about family or, you know, some type of drama like that. But uh, a book about aliens or, or taking place on another planet that, that can at least teach us a little bit about ourselves while we're reading it. I mean, I think that's a worthwhile pursuit, too. And I think just interesting side note, both Le Guin and Angela Carter were inspired by Virginia Woolf, who herself was obviously a massively uh, important literary figure. Um, another great thing about Le Guin, though, is she is not shy about writing about characters of color. She says, if you look at my books, you'll find that most of my central characters aren't white. You don't see it on the cover because they refuse to put people of color on book jackets. But I've always done that deliberately because most people in the world aren't white. Why in the future would we assume they are? And the 1970s were also a really important decade for Octavia E. Butler, who would later become the first science fiction writer to win a MacArthur Genius Grant. And in 1971, her first story, Crossover, was published in the Clarion Anthology. And that was then followed up by her first novel, Pattern Master, published in 1976. And for a little bit of a throwback, she briefly studied under... Samuel Delaney, that uh, African-American science fiction author slash prodigy we talked about earlier. And um, Pattern Master, though, kicked off the first of her five-volume Patternist series. And then, closing out the decade in 1971, her publication of Kindred, according to her website, allowed her to support herself fully on her writing, mm-hmm. full-time. Which, what a dream to achieve. Absolutely. And I mean, the 70s was a great time for women, as Leckie pointed out. Uh, if you look at the women nominated for Hugo's in the 1970s, they include Le Guin, Vonda McIntyre, Anne McCaffrey, Kate Wilhelm, Joan Vinge, and Marion Zimmer. Bradley. And then there are a couple of, of uh, lady sci-fi writers who are definitely working in that second wave feminist theme of the time into their work. You've got James Tiptree Jr., who we mentioned earlier, is Alice Bradley Shelton, who pins the feminist short story, The Women Men Don't See. And in 1975, you have Joanna Russ publishing the feminist sci-fi book, The Female Man, which was nominated for a Nebula Award. And it really explored the social construction of gender roles. But today, it's considered problematic for a lot of trans women. As Cheryl Morgan pointed out over at Autostraddle back in April 2013, she writes that trans women in Russ's book are manufactured to provide compliant wives for the men because all of the quote-unquote real women in the world have long since gone off and found out a lesbian separatist state. So I can see that it would be problematic, but I just think that plotline is about the lesbian separatist state is hilarious. Well, it reminds me of our podcast on women in farming and how <laughs> some you know radical lesbian feminists w- would get, kind of go off and have their own start their own collective farms. Sans men, right? To live completely away from male society. Um, and even today, though, when you look at any 
listicle of the best women sci-fi writers, the best uh, sci-fi books written by women, all those, all those kind of uh, women-centric sci-fi rankings. All of these names continually come up. I mean, the '70s clearly kind of kind of laid the foundation for the female-authored sci-fi canon. It seems like, and um, the the '80s and '90s were not as prolific of a time, or at least not as celebrated of a time for women in science fiction. But we have Octavia E. Butler giving us some bright spots as well when she wins a Hugo Award for her short story Speech Sounds and the novelette Bloodchild, which also won Nebula and Locus Awards and was recognized by the San Francisco Chronicle as the best novelette. And that's what Caroline and I have been reading over yeah. the past couple of weeks, and it's so good. It's so good. Her writing is so, and I don't say this as a negative, her writing is so spare. It's very easy to read. It really puts the focus on her fascinating plot lines, because um, we picked up It's Blood Child and Other Stories, which is yeah, obviously a, a group of short stories by Octavia Butler. <laughs> Octavia E. Butler, don't drop that E. Um, but it's so interesting reading her work, because all of her stories kind of start out, and you're like, oh, well, this just seems like a normal story in a normal world with regular people. And then, of course, she throws in some fascinating twist, and you realize then what sort of a great example of this visionary fiction Octavia E. Butler's work is, because she does. She just throws what seems like a regular world with regular people who have regular fears and hopes and desires at you, but then they have to struggle with something like a crazy disease that's been brought about by sort of some drug therapy or about aliens needing to uh, kind of stick their eggs in you and you have to birth them as a male person. In Blood Child. Yeah. Yeah, and, and one of the things I love about the uh, short story collection we've been We've both been reading is that it include each story includes an afterword from Butler and in discussing Blood Child, um, she was saying that a lot of times she's surprised by how people think that the story is about slavery or colonization, but her motivation was really wanting to write about and explore the concept of a world where men could get pregnant mm-hmm. and what would that look like. And to your point about these being stories that are just about people until some kind of strange element is tossed in there. I think gets to a lot of misconceptions about science fiction that it's just pew, pew, laser guns <laughs> and weird goo on strange planets. <laughs> but it seems like the best science fiction out there it makes us question our own lives because a lot of times it does take place in perhaps quite ordinary settings, mm-hmm. but then... All of a sudden you have, knock, 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 this strange creature knocking on your door to give you drug eggs. <laughs> to knock you up. Yes. <laughs> so you can then have, you know, bug sex with you. And of course, while that is disgusting, um, a lot of people out there would call people like Octavia E. Butler or Ursula K. Le Guin soft science fiction. A lot of people out there would argue that hard science fiction... Um, is the stuff not only with laser guns, but that really delves into scientific theory and, and ideas about, you know, robots and machines. Um, but I think that that is not necessarily as accessible to the average reader. And I don't just mean us ladies here chatting, Kristen. I, I just mean like, you know, the average reader might not 
be as turned on by those heavily scientific or mechanical <laughs> concepts. Oh, well, Caroline, speak for yourself because plasma ray uh, blueprints do get me going in the <laughs> evening. Uh, but the whole real science fiction slash hard sci-fi versus quote unquote soft sci-fi, I guess. Sounds very comfortable. <laughs> I know. It's just it's very plush. Mm. Is so reminiscent though of conversations we've had about gender and gaming and music and music criticism where there's this particular type of thing that is considered the real craft and art that is usually um held away from from women. It's usually something yeah. propped up to say, uh to keep other people at bay, essentially. And that's not to say that whoever, men or women or whoever, won't understand or appreciate, quote unquote, hard science fiction. But I don't think that the existence of that type of sci-fi should negate or or lessen the importance and enjoyment that people can get out of other stories. Well, and this idea of insider versus outsider status of hard sci-fi versus sci-fi and fantasy could tie into Octavia E. Butler's personal experiences that have fueled her sci-fi explorations in her writing. Yeah, her background definitely informs her writing. In 1998, she told the Los Angeles Times, I'm black, I'm solitary, I've always been an outsider. Because growing up, she was dyslexic, she was tall for her age, she was super shy, but she was also a big reader, and she really took a lot of refuge, like a lot, like a lot of people do, in books and stories. And in 2000, she told the New York Times, when I began writing science Science fiction. When I began reading, heck, I wasn't in any of the stuff I read. The only black people you found were occasional characters or characters who were so feeble-witted that they couldn't manage anything anyway. I wrote myself in since I'm me and I'm here and I'm writing. And does that not echo back to what Margaret Cavendish said in her epilogue and her introduction to her book? Yes. I mean, uh, Octavia E. Butler was the empress of her own world. That's right. Well, straying even farther away from hard sci-fi, if we get into the late 1990s and now, more and more publishers are expanding this genre into fantasy realms and they're marketing, actively marketing more of these kinds of science fiction and fantasy stories thanks to the popularity of series like Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and Divergent, which have proven to these publishers and imprints that, hey, women sci-fi and fantasy authors can bring in the cash. Right, yeah, because those are all great lady authors, and they've all gone on to be incredibly popular and huge money-making film series. And Julie Crisp, who's the editorial director at Tor UK, which is a sci-fi, fantasy, and horror imprint of Pan Macmillan, is pretty optimistic. She told The Guardian there's been a real sea change in the last five or six years. Not only are more women buying into and reading fantasy, but we're also seeing more female fantasy authors get recognition. And, I mean, shows like Game of Thrones have definitely helped. Of course, yes, Game of Thrones was obviously a book series by George R. R. Martin before it was a show, but not everybody's read the books. I haven't read the books. But For shame, I, Caroline. There's so many. Leave. Um, I just like the the show so much. Um, but yeah, shows like that and, and how popular it is, it's definitely sucked in a lot of audience members who maybe would have avoided fantasy. 
Yeah, and then there's the whole social media aspect that has helped introduce female authors into new audiences. And on top of that, too, given a platform for visibility and response when things like the Hugo Awards nonsense goes down. Like, yeah. that doesn't fly anymore. Sure, and it's the same thing that we, we touched on in our episodes about comic books and women in comics and cartoons, that now it's so easy, or well, relatively easy for women to get their um, comic books or their digital comics out to other people online. So we're going to move away from focusing on the sci-fi creators and looking at gender within science fiction plot lines. Well, it shouldn't be too hard to imagine, especially with everything that Kristen and I have already talked about so far, that science fiction is really the perfect tool, the perfect literary tool with which to play with gender identity because gender can be just a role that a character takes on as it's convenient or beneficial. Um, and these worlds without sex or gender allow characters in the arc of the storyline to transcend the boundaries that we humans are so used to dealing with. Yeah, I mean, these these are all kind of set up as scientific experiments are in the way that we talk about uh, the, the studies that we cite throughout the podcast where you can control for different variables and see what the outcome is with your mind. <laughs> and one of the masters of tinkering with those variables is, of course, Octavia E. Butler, who plays around with the idea of gender in her Xenogenesis trilogy, which is about an alien species that basically saves humans from themselves and has three genders, male, female, and uloi. And reproduction involves all three. Yeah, you basically have this uh, this uloi character who kind of goes between the men and the women and, and, you know, takes out the bits that are needed to, to make a baby and then sticks it back into the lady. Um, I'm being real scientific. Yeah. Since this is a science fiction episode, I, I want to be very scientific. Um, but the, the motivation being that it, it, it equalizes men and women more when nobody's responsible for the giving and the taking and the caring of, well, the woman's still carrying the child, but it, it's kind of putting things on a more level playing field. Uh, and Uloi reminds me of umami. Is it like the umami mm. of, Tastes of the like soy sauce? Yeah. yeah. I mean, without umami, I mean, what do we have? Just salty and sweet. Well, and then a little bitter. And now I'm talking about our, <laughs> our senses. It um, is lunchtime. It's true. Well, then over at The Guardian in April 2014, uh, Damien Walter helpfully listed out some sci-fi authors who have really explored gender and sexuality. And Walter cites Ian M. Banks and the Culture Series, in which members of this society that Banks has created, who are called The Culture, are able to change sex and gender roles at will. Yeah, and Kim Stanley Robinson in his book 2312 envisions a future with fluid non-binary gender. And so avid listeners of of Sminty should recognize the concept of fluid gender and that this is not some crazy science fiction concept to either have fluid gender or fluid sexuality. And in addition to Walter at The Guardian, Jeff Summers over at the Barnes & Noble blog in November 2014 also listed a bunch of people who 
toyed with the idea of gender and sexuality in sci-fi. And of course, he mentions Le Guin and her left hand of darkness, but also talks about Jeff L. Chalker's entire catalog, saying that Chalker consistently looks at gender as something that's not a fixed binary code of nature and that the focus is more on the character's actions, not on gender roles. And he also lists Melissa Scott and her book Shadow Man, which features a universe with five genders. And the people in this universe end up with five genders because, okay, by now we have faster than light space travel. Oh, but wait, to do that, you have to take this drug and this drug causes there to be more than two genders. There's five now. Um, and she also looks, in light of this fact that now there's five genders, she looks at the one world that's cut off from the rest where binary genders are still strictly enforced. So being able to look at what happens when basically you have Earth... <laughs> and humans, you know, which are, um, I don't know that in her book it is Earth, but basically Earth, um, where we so strictly adhere to the binary gender system and then look at it through the eyes of people who are like, oh, we're way past that. Parallel universes. Right. It's right. like the sliding door starring Gwyneth Paltrow of science oh fiction. You know? I watched that movie so much growing up. Really? I loved it. Were you ever tempted to get her post-breakup haircut? No, but my best friend did. Huh. Yeah, yeah, she did. She rocked it. She's got that jawline, though. I don't have that same jawline. You gotta have that jawline. Back to sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> and Summers rounds out the list, too, with Anne Leckie, whom we've uh, mentioned earlier, whose debut novel, Ancillary Justice, gobbled up all sorts of awards, including the Hugo and the Nebula. And in Ancillary Justice, the main character comes from a genderless society, but refers to everyone they meet as she. And gender or lack of it isn't the focus, though. Non-gendered beings are normalized, which is a really interesting way of of looking at it as well, when it's not the focal point, when you just sort of normalize it then see how that makes everything else unfold. Yeah, and Alex Daly McFarlane over at Tor.com is somebody who's written extensively about gender um, and binary gender in sci-fi, and she's gotten a lot of flack for it by a lot of people, probably some of the sad puppies who were basically like, get your gender paws off of my science fiction. Um, but she writes about how she has issues with both Leckie and Le Guin's use of a gendered pronoun pronoun for non-gendered people because like we said uh, Le Guin used he for everyone in Left Hand of Darkness and Leckie used she for everybody and McFarlane says that non-gendered people are not a science fictional concept they are real people non-binary pronouns exist that would better represent them And, of course, a lot of people spoke up and said, yes, absolutely, I agree with you. Some people said, well, you know, those concepts or those words are very human. They're very, um, maybe they're only known to certain communities in certain cultures here in America or, or whatever, basically saying, well, just come up with something new or maybe don't quibble with it because it's science fiction and they can do whatever they want. I also wonder if there can be... A utility in, say, with Lucky using she, with using these established pronouns that might help us better grasp the concept even more because it feels more relatable and direct. And maybe I'm like also looking at things like way too binary, but I mean, if, if the point is to really make the reader explore 
life sans gender or non-binary gender, then at least for me as a reader and how my imagination works, having at least like one signpost stuck in the world that I walk through every day mm-hmm. almost makes it feel, it makes the imaginary more real, if that makes sense. And I guess there's also the possibility that if Lecky or Le Guin had, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have or whatever, but there's also the possibility that if they came up with their own pronouns, that you, the reader, would still imprint your own desire to have someone be male like uh, if someone's the protagonist and this this being if it's an alien for instance isn't meant to be male or female but it has a pronoun that's completely new and alien that you might just assume oh well it's the it's the lead character there's a lot of action and and laser guns and so i'm just going to put he on it oh that's well and that too though i say that's a point for using a non-gendered pronoun because then it might make you stop and think, wait, why am I inherently like masculinizing or feminizing this character? What does that say about me? Yeah, and so I guess Lecky's use of she, it does seem like it's kind of a direct answer to Le Guin's use of he. Yeah. Um, but maybe it is that conscious like, okay, stop. We're going to not use he. We're going to use she for everything. And it, and it sort of does force you to think like, oh, well, do I always think he? Mm-hmm. Probably. Um, well, and Damien Walter is similarly impatient as Alex Daly McFarlane is for the queering of science fiction. In The Guardian, Walter writes that science fiction needs to reflect that the future is queer, saying that beyond even the pronoun issue, too many storylines focus on straight narratives. Plus, you have a lot of conservative sci-fi fans attacking people like McFarlane for calling for more diversity and better representation of actual non-gender conforming people. But why would this even matter? Why should we even care about science fiction and this kind of representation? And Walter writes that this tug of war exists because science fiction is, quote, torn between its higher mission to explore the future and its lower function as mass entertainment. Yeah, and, and he he highlights that reasoning and immediately knocks it down by saying the science fiction novels of Ian and Banks were bestsellers many times over, in part because the future they explored was openly queer. He also cites Nicola Griffith's book Hilled, which features a bisexual protagonist, which was nominated for a Nebula Award by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. So it's possible, hello, it's possible to have people of different sexual sexual orientations, different sexualities, um, leading a story and still have it be incredibly successful. Because, I mean, if, if anywhere is going to do it and really be successful with it, it's going to be science fiction. I mean, we're imagining worlds with aliens. Can we not imagine bisexual people? Yeah. And so for that reason, it's not terribly surprising that a lot of people say that we still have a long way to go in terms of representing gender nonconforming characters and trans characters in science fiction and not always hewing to such traditional heteronormative masculine and feminine roles. And we do still also have a long way to go in terms of acknowledging women's place in sci-fi authorship, both now and in the past. Obviously, we have a lot of authors' names that seem to get excavated every couple of years when there's sort of a a lady writer trend going on in the media. Um, But, you know, some people would argue... 
you know, why do we need to fight for or care about the inclusion of uh, characters of different sexualities or backgrounds or, or sexual identities or anything like that? And I don't know that we necessarily do need to to fight for them, but I do think it helps to be aware that. In terms of stories getting to publishers and editors and then actually being published, we're probably not seeing the full scope of, of things getting represented. That there are probably so many store, great stories out there by great writers who we're just not seeing because maybe publishers are straying away from, oh, well, you wrote about a, a, a gay alien or a, or a trans woman leading, you know, the revolution of the universe or things like that. And, so I do, I do think it is helpful to sort of go forward with the knowledge that there's other stuff out there and other stories that we're being cheated out of because maybe some publishers are just kind of afraid of it. Well, and when it comes to gender and science fiction as well, I would be not so concerned in terms of the publishing end of it. Although, yes, absolutely a concern. But I wonder, too, if, you know, if it's even more helpful for science fiction to be kind of moved away from this idea that it's just like a dude thing Mm -hmm. for the sake of girl readers who might think, oh, well, if I really like this science fiction stuff, but I should hide it because this is what, you know, nerdy boys like and not what nerdy or cool girls like, you know, I mean, that's one thing that we haven't talked about either in terms of the, the gendering of sci-fi fandom. Although I think that that's definitely changing with the rise of cons and social media and just sort of the mainstreaming in general of fandom. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the recognition of women sci-fi authors and the works that they're creating has a positive trickle effect, hopefully, to readership as well. Yeah, and I mean, people are definitely working on it. Last year, the science fiction and fantasy magazine Lightspeed published a special issue called Women Destroy Science Fiction, which was immediately followed up by Women Destroy Fantasy and Women Destroy Horror. And these issues were edited and written entirely by women, and they were funded by a whole bunch of people over on Kickstarter. And they're not meant to actually destroy science fiction or these other genres as Plenty of sad puppies have claimed, but they're meant to confront the notion that women don't write real sci-fi, that they write some sort of softer, terrible version of it. And, you know, it's to confront those stereotypes, but also to expand the whole sci-fi universe in general, to show that there are other voices out there and that they're just as quote-unquote real as any other sci-fi authors. And oh, for the future day in my visionary fiction, when women won't need to prove they can do anything quote-unquote real in comparison to men, because we just accept people as people and having their own unique strengths. That gets so Old. It gets mm-hmm. so old. The idea, oh, this is written entirely by women. This is composed entirely by women. We're showing things entirely by women, which I see the point, but it gets, it does get exhausting because it's like, oh, well, who, awesome. Oh, what a notion. Something can be done entirely by women. Yep. Let's move on mm-hmm. and go read a book on the beach. Like a sci fi book. Yeah. Like Bloodchild. Like Left Hand of Darkness. So, Caroline. What is your next sci-fi read going to be? Well, I literally have Left Hand of Darkness in my bag. Literally? Literally have it out there right now in my bag outside the studio. Um, And I just have not read it yet. 
Well, I'm going to try to get my hands on some Angela Carter, I think, because, I mean, a feminist horror author that I have to read right now, I mean, I do what I'm told when it comes to headlines, <laughs> when it comes to clickbaity he- headlines on the Internet. Right. So that sounds like a fun one for a summer vacation if if it ever happens for me this year. <laughs> so let's live vicariously through our readers. We want to know what you're reading this summer. If it is science fiction, fantastic. If it's not, you just want to share, fantastic as well. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can send all of your sci-fi recommendations. You can also tweet them to us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Helen about our bisexual erasure episode. She says, I'm an 18-year-old pansexual female, and I do find that bisexual and fluid orientations in general do get ignored a lot by straight and gay orientations. One of the reasons I identify as pan instead of bi is that when I was trying to figure out my identifier, I felt very uncomfortable with the term bisexual. This has a lot to do with the negative attitudes towards bisexuals that stigmatized and ostracized bisexuality. Pansexuality meant an escape from the negativity and the sick feeling I had associated with bisexuality. A few years on, and I'm trying to reclaim bisexual as a term for myself because I know that the discomfort I felt is a social construct, and I want to be more involved in the LGBTIQA discussion and culture. The fact that P isn't a letter included in that acronym is telling. My sexuality is way more to me than just who I'm attracted to. It's who I'm friends with, the things I talk about, the way I dress, and the media I consume and obsess about on Tumblr. It'd be great if society treated sexuality as such. Well, we have a very topical letter here from a Sminty Superstar fan, Hannah. She writes, Hello, C-squared. Just a quick message about one television character who is described as omnisexual and hates the boxes we seem to crush people into. Captain Jack Harkness, as portrayed by John Barrowman. Jack is a recurring character on Doctor Who and the lead on the Doctor Who spinoff, Torchwood. Jack was born and raised in the 51st century and is stranded in the 21st. He's used to a culture in which romantic and sexual options go far beyond different sexes or genders and include aliens, both humanoid and non-humanoid, so he finds our current culture stifling. He often scoffs at his employees' attempts to categorize him and others with a muttered, you people in your quaint little categories. Jack is not bisexual, but he's heroic, strong, caring, and funny alongside his tendency to see beauty and sexual allure in everyone, terrestrial or extra. He may be easily turned on in an unrepentant flirt, but he's a genuinely good man and extremely competent. Love the show, Hannah. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstaff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to Lady Margaret Cavendish's book and all sorts of other fun stuff, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 